So I've been preaching this sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Our Sunday school teachers tell our children that the Ten Commandments are the ten best ways, the ten best ways to live, and I love that way of thinking about them. The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself any graven images from anything that is in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. And this is also Stewardship Sunday, so see if you could think of a more apt text for Stewardship Sunday than this story I'm going to read from Exodus 32 right now. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Moses' brother Aaron and said to Aaron, Come, make gods for us, for as for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to the people, Take off the gold rings that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so they did, and Aaron fashioned a calf from the gold of the earrings and bracelets of the Hebrew women and children. And they said, These are our gods who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And then Moses went down the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the law, tablets that were written on both sides, carved by, by the very finger of the Lord. And as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger kindled hot, and he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them against the face of the mountain. And just in case we didn't get the point from the book of Exodus, the prophet Jeremiah throws in his two cents. Jeremiah says in chapter 10, The idols of the nations are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They can't speak. They can't move. You have to carry them around. Don't be afraid of them, for they can neither work evil nor good. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the second commandment, or the second of the ten best ways to live, prohibits visual renderings of the invisible, ineffable deity behind every burning star and spinning world. And this stricture made the Hebrews utterly unique among the ancient tribes with whom they shared the land around the southern and eastern coasts of the Mediterranean Sea around 1400 BC when this story begins. Every other Middle Eastern tribe painted images or carved statues to give some idea of the nature and characteristics of the God they worshipped. And so you can see how this would put the Hebrews at a distinct theological disadvantage so many years ago. So you're an Israelite trading merchandise with the Philistines or on a first date with a Moabite or having a beer at the pub with an Amalekite and you're getting acquainted and though your mama taught you never to talk about religion and polite company, the conversation veers in that direction and so you ask your date, so what's your God like? And she says, well, my God is called Asherah and she is the goddess of fertility and procreation. And this is what she looks like. And so she puts her hand into her backpack and brings out a little figurine, a very feminine figurine, figurine sexy and curvy. And all you can say to yourself is, yes, I can see how that would be the goddess of fertility and procreation. 
Or you're sitting with your business customer in your office around a conference table and you ask your Amalekite friend, so what's your God like? And he says, my God's name is Baal. And then he picks out a little figurine that's very masculine indeed, very virile and muscular with six-pack abs. This is Baal, the God of storm and rain. And you can only agree, yes, I can see how that would make the crops grow. And then they turn to you and say, so what's your God? look like. And you were raised a good little Jewish kid, so you say, well, my God's name is Yahweh. And your friend says, that's the coolest name for God I've ever heard. What does it mean? What does Yahweh look like? Is it a he or a she? What does Yahweh do? And all you can say is, well, Yahweh means I will be what I will be. Yahweh is not a he or a she. And I have no idea what Yahweh looks like because no one looks upon the face of God and lives. And your friend says, I will be what I will be. That's interesting. So, the Hebrews were at a distinct theological disadvantage. The worst thing about Jewish, Christian, Muslim theology is that our God can't be imagined. And the best thing about Jewish, Christian, Muslim theology is that our God can't be imagined. You can't paint this God. Our God can't be sculpted or chiseled or carved. Our God can't be seen. Our our God can't be understood. Our God can't be captured, can't be had, can't be pinned down. Because the nature of God is not imagined or painted, it's given to us. God has been God since before an infinitesimal singularity burst its horizon and filled 15 billion light years of nothingness with flame and energies. And so the second commandment protects and guards the unbridgeable yawning chasm between humanity and divinity. And from the beginning, the Hebrew Bible viciously and relentlessly mocks the tiny little gods of the other tribes they shared the land with. How can you possibly think that something you carved with your own blade or sculpted with your own chisel could protect you from evil or bless you with good? Your gods are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, says the Hebrew Bible. They're mute They're blind, they're breathless and lifeless, they're pinned down, they're dumb as a bag of straw, they have a stick up there, you know what, and they don't have a brain like the scarecrow in Oz. And you thought the Bible was bland, and isn't that a perfect image for tiny little gods, scarecrows in a cucumber field? Even the crows aren't scared of scarecrows. At the golf course I play at in Michigan when I'm up there in August, we have a Canada goose problem. We must be under a flight path between the Yukon and Mexico or wherever the geese winter. And so the geese love to spend the night on my golf course. And so the greenskeeper thought that the solution to this problem would be to find a latex facsimile of a coyote or a fox spread across an iron bar to convince the geese that there's a dangerous predator on the golf course. So there it sits between the second and the fifth hole on my golf course. And this works for about 10 minutes. 
the geese are not as silly as they say geese are, and they realize there's nothing to be afraid of from this thing. The only beast this latex facsimile scares is my dog Dudley. Scares the hell out of him the first day, and then he finds out there's nothing to be scared of and everything's okay. And that, says the Hebrew Bible, is exactly what these tiny little gods of the other nations are like. Scarecrows in a cucumber field. They're benign. They're inert. They're as useful as scarecrows in a cucumber field. Well, so what, right? We're not ancient Moabites or Amalekites. We're 21st century rationalists. It would never occur to us to think that something we carved with our own blade or chiseled with our own steel could possibly protect us from evil or bless us from good. How is this second commandment God's word for us in 2016? Well, I am glad you asked. This is how. It's because we human beings keep placing earthly objects on heavenly thrones. We keep turning penultimacies into ultimacies and means into ends. That's a definition of idolatry, turning means into ends. It's anything we unwittingly deify. For instance, this building is a vehicle for divinity. It is for me. I hope it is for you. This is the place where we meet God, right? God is here, and I mean that quite literally. But if I unwittingly, gradually begin to deify this structure of common stone and white pine and say, this is perfect. We can never change anything about this place. I've just put an earthly object on a heavenly throne, haven't I? Or the liturgy by which we worship God during this worship service. It's a via- I hope it's a vehicle to God for you. The thought we pour into this can bring us into God's presence. But it's not God. And so, when the preacher moves the offering from one point in the liturgy to another... He's not apostate, okay? And the music, I love our music, this wonderful ancient choral music. But if I begin to concentrate on the substance and form and performance of the music, instead of the God the music's meant to reveal, I'm beginning to put an earthly object on a heavenly throne, right? I love Susan's pipe organ and the magic she works with it, but... If I begin to say, only the pipe organ can bring me into the presence of God, I have carved a graven image. Not only that, but I've slandered His Holiness Bruce Springsteen and his magic guitar. The great preacher John Killinger tells a story about a church where they, where ancient tradition and the old ways were very important to this church. It might have been a Presbyterian church, an Episcopalian church, I don't know. But in this church, the ushers wore morning coats and the choir wore red hats. And this church hired a new choir director. And at her first rehearsal, the new choir director asked, why do you wear red hats? Nobody knew. Nobody could remember why they wore red hats. Nobody wanted to wear the red hats. They all voted unanimously to ditch the red hats. And so the next Sunday, when they proceeded down the aisle during the opening hymn to the chancel, and they lacked their red hats, one of the pillars of the church was sitting there and noticed the absence of the red hats, and he hit the roof 
And Dr. Killinger said, it's a long way up. And on Monday morning, the new choir director gets a letter. You bring back those red hats or I will have your job so fast you won't have a chance to pack a cardboard box with your office belongings. It's putting earthly objects on heavenly thrones. And when I put it that way, you can see why this is a perfect text for Stewardship Sunday, right? Because what's the easiest thing? What's the easiest earthly object for us to place on the throne of our hearts? I'm convicted by that question. I don't know about you. I love my gold. So it's no accident that calf, that Aaron fashioned, is made of gold. So Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to talk to God and to bring God's message back to God's people. But Moses stays up there for like six weeks. He takes a sabbatical or something. And down in the valley below, the troops are getting restless and they come up to Aaron and they say, What's happened to this Moses? We don't know where he's gone. He's probably dead. God's probably killed him. And we don't know about this Yahweh guy either. We want a God we can see and touch. We want a beautiful God, Aaron. And for some inexplicable reason, spineless Aaron complies and he turns bracelets and earrings into this molten golden calf And the Israelites begin genuflecting and dancing before it. And when Moses comes down with the mountain and sees this monstrosity, he's so mad, he takes the stone tablets of the the law and flings them against the face of the mountain. They smash into smithereens. And that's the source of the old saying, broker than the Ten Commandments. The federal government is broker than the Ten Commandments. This is where it comes from. So, I hope you read the e-news that we all received the other day from Rhonda and Herb Jordan and Lauren Bruce Linger. It was called, Where is Your Heart? So, the Lingers and the Jordans are on the same page with me. What's on the throne of your heart? Scarecrow in a cucumber field? Gold? The invisible God. So you're, I want you to think about your philanthropy as one way of testifying to the world whom you belong to and whom the world belongs to. So Herb and Rhonda have done the math for you. We received 661 pledges last year. The average pledge was $2,968. When you multiply those numbers, you get $1.96 million. Voila! That's exactly what it costs us to run the church. In a point of, this is a little bit of a diversion, point of personal privilege. I've never served a church where the receipts came as close to the pledges as they do here. In other words, if you tell us you're going to give us X number of dollars, X number of dollars is what you give us. It's wonderful. I can't tell you how much that emblem of respect means to the staff and to the board. So, great job. There are 1,100 families in this congregation. It would be wonderful if we got that number of pledges up from 661 to 700. Then the average pledge could stay the same. Now, 
you probably don't know the salary of the person sitting next to you. I hope you don't. The only salaries you know are mine and Joe's and Katie's and your wife's, maybe. I bet you don't even know what your adult children make. But you have some idea, right? You know where you stand in the order of things around here. And so if you are below average in household income, give us a smaller than average pledge. And if you make more than the average household income, we hope you will bless us with a larger pledge. And if you are facing dire circumstances or unexpected expenses just now, don't give us anything. The rest of us will carry you. Someday it'll be your turn. So your And we don't want all your philanthropy. We know you have multiple obligations to charity and good things in our world, just a piece of it. That's what we hope for, from you. We hope to hear from you whom the world belongs to. <laughs> Did you know that even your dog knows how generous you are? Yeah, they did a study, and they had puppies watch people who were approached by beggars. And some of the folk gave these beggars money and food, and some of these folks sent the beggars away. Get lost, they said to the beggars. Later, when these folk called the puppies to them, guess which persons the puppies fled to? overwhelmingly. I never want to disappoint my dog. <laughs> In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.